The moment he saw her, the easy grace of her stride, he knew that he was safe. No Judas could walk like that. She was as luminous as a saint in a stained glass window. I'm here, he said as she came round the stack of hay. You have to go in, she said breathlessly. You're safe. Through that door in the kitchen wall where I came out and left through the kitchen garden, there's a small door to the house, black oak, at the side of the house on the left. You go in there. It's the door on the right. His window overlooks the kitchen garden. He's waiting for you. His name is Mr. Tudley. He did not. He was not. You're not in his power now. She shook her head. He paid me, she said, trembling with relief, for bringing you in. He's on your side, and he paid for my silence. I'm richer by far for meeting you. He took both her hands, and I you. For a moment they stood handclasped, and then he released her. God bless you and help you to prosper, he said formally. I shall pray for you, and I shall send your money when I'm back in France. You owe me nothing, she said, and Mr. Tudley already gave me two shillings. A whole two shillings. He thought of his seminary, the gold plate on the altar, the glitter of diamonds and rubies on the shrines, the gold crucifix on the gold chain around his neck. Tonight he would dine off silver and sleep on the finest linen while someone laundered his shirt and polished his boots. Tomorrow or the next day he would meet Sir William and they would hire a boat and bribe men with the fortune that he carried. Meanwhile, this woman celebrated earning two shillings. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome back to the Good Reading Podcast. My name is Emma Harvey. Today we have the absolute pleasure to be chatting with the boss of British historical fiction, Philippa Gregory. You may know her from her many, many New York Times bestselling novels, which chronicle the lives of women in Britain's history. This month, Philippa's back with a new set of books, the Fair Mile series, beginning with the title Tidelands, a narrative that ventures into slightly different terrain. She is with us now on the phone from the UK. Philippa, welcome. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you. Um, now, at the beginning of the book, you write a little letter to your readers, uh, which says that while you've enjoyed your fictionalised biographies of well-known women, you wanted to write a different kind of saga this time around. What's different about this series? Well, there's, it, there's many things different about it. I suppose the main thing is that we've moved away from the court and the royal uh, of England and the circle that surrounds them. And that was important to me because I've always been interested, not in kings, but in the less known people of the court, the uh, female relatives, the wives, daughters, sisters, and mistresses, and uh, the lives of, of the women related to them. So uh, in Lady of the Rivers, for instance, I'm actually talking about the mother of the commoner wife, uh, Elizabeth Woodville, who becomes Queen of England when she's married by Edward. So I've always been interested in the lives of ordinary women, but the women that I've been focusing on have been the ones who are uh, sometimes born into very ordinary lives, but find themselves ultimately in the court. Um, and this 
novel was a bit of a departure, but I, I'm focusing on an ordinary woman who remains in, as it were, civilian life. She never makes it to any sort of uh, wealth or fortune or fame. And that was interesting for me that we're, in that I wanted to really focus upon where most of us, after all, come from, which is ordinary families. You know, by and large, we are not descendants of royalty. Our, our background, our history... English history is made up of ordinary people. Right. And so a lot of your research you usually would have to turn to or you'd be able to turn to the biographies of these women who were already known in the history books. So how did you... Amazingly, (laughs) amazingly, even these women who are of such significance in the history often don't have biographies. Uh, The most famous example for me now is uh, my book, The Other Boleyn Girl, Mary Boleyn, the sister of Anne Boleyn. When I started work on her, there was no biography about her. There wasn't even an essay. She was a footnote uh, in her sister's life. And that was only, and her sister was only one of six wives. So she was really completely neglected. And I wrote a novel about her. And now there are four historical biographies mm. uh, of her, literally as a result of my work on her. It's it's very, I mean, it, it, it's very interesting what... A fictional contribution can do to the historical record that it in it prompted the interest of historians to go and look at her real life. These women are literally not recorded. When you come to people like um, my character, who is a midwife, there are historical records about midwives, but they're mostly in this period. But they're mostly when women come to trial, so they're mostly criminal records. If they happen to get into trouble in some way, then they're recorded. Or if really that's the only circumstance. Otherwise, um, you just get idea of what their work is from. There's one book of advice to midwives, so you know what their their medical practice was like. But apart from that, you've got to read through what records there are of, of people merely remarking that in their village they have a midwife or in their village they don't. Mm. I mean, it's extraordinary how little women have been recorded uh, ordinary women in in history. Even though these other um, women that you've written about haven't really been privileged in the history books, they still were people that existed. Whereas with Eleanor, your your central character, she's fictional. Yeah. Um, and so, what was the research process like, looking into her and trying to dig up stuff? Well, it it the research becomes very uh, very much what uh, historians would do if they were writing about. Uh, you know, common women of the time, you you look at everything you possibly can and you sort of put together a composite character, which is what historians do. If you ask historians what, what a midwife's doing in 1640, they can't say, here's a midwife uh, whose life is recorded. We've got her diary. They'll be doing something like that. What they have to do is to say, here's someone who doesn't get her license because she behaves like this. Mm. So we know that you're not allowed to do that. Here's someone who ends up in court accused of witchcraft. So we know that midwives come under a lot of suspicion. Here's, you know, in Malleus Maleficarium, the uh, handbook of how to hunt witches, there's specifically a chapter uh, which accuses midwives of stealing Christian children. So you know that, so you know that midwives, for instance, are slightly suspect, and you know also that they're coming under pressure from a male medical establishment that is wanting to move into rich and privileged patients. 
so they're wanting to basically take over the midwife's job. So they're a threatened group. So you've got that sort of material. In addition to that, we know what sort of wages people were paid in this period. We know what sort of food they were eating. We know what sort of goods were being sold and exported and imported. So there's a lot of general history, which once I researched, I could apply to her life. It's really interesting. I mean, this is, I'm getting very nerdy now, but it's very interesting to me that this is a time where people start changing from drinking small ale, which is brewed by women in their kitchens and sold for them at a very little profit, to uh, beer, which is made from hops and has to be made commercially because it's got to be in bigger batches and it is it lasts longer. You can preserve it. So you can sell it at longer distances. You can sell it for longer time, which basically means that the business turns from being domestic, female-dominated, a really important industry for women, into a male industry, which is mechanized and capitalized. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very typical of what happens to industries when they move from female entrepreneurs to male entrepreneurs anyway, even today. Uh, right. in developing countries. But it's also a really great example for me, one of the ways that she makes a bit of money uh, in a life which is full of making little bits of money, which is typical of the female entrepreneur in the 17th century. Right, and, and Eleanor really is the marginal woman in every sense. Yes. She's she's part of a, a marginal profession uh, that people are mildly suspicious of at that time um, of midwifery and also as a herbalist. You've said in interviews before that you sometimes become so acquainted with your characters over the years that you write about them, that you can picture them as vividly as you can your close friends. So I'm curious, what does Eleanor look like to you? Oh, um, well, she wears the clothes of the time. So she wears a rather scruffy skirt and a jacket, and they are tied together with laces. Mm -hmm. uh, she has a shift, which she uh, like a... Uh, linen shift, uh, which she's, which she will have made herself, should have woven it from flax, um, spun it from flax and woven it herself. Uh, she doesn't bath very often. I think in the novel, which is over two years, I think she takes two baths. Uh, she's not particularly uh, disgusting in terms of smelly because she does rub herself down, but she spends her life in the same clothes fishing so she does there is an aroma around her all the time and she's very conscious she's rather exceptionally finicky in her practice so she is conscious she washes her hands which most midwives didn't bother to do um she's beautiful uh in that she has very regular features and gray eyes and brown golden brown hair but her hair is always kept under a cap as modesty requires and, of course, she's not going to be beautiful for very long. She's beautiful because she's in her late 20s. But uh, she's going to probably, if she follows the statistical norm, she'll probably die in her mid-40s, and she will be an old woman by her mid-30s. It's a very, very, very hard life. One of the things I pride myself on is, although I write historical fiction, it's never with rose-tinted spectacles. I never imagine the past as a better place for women than today. And in the life of Eleanor, uh, although it is filled with some really profound joys, possibly experiences that modern women don't have. So she does fall in love with somebody that she shouldn't be in love with. And 
the power of the taboo and the power of the love is probably greater than you would experience in a normal modern life. And her life in the countryside, so close to nature and so close to uh, the herbs and the flowers that she grows and the medicines that she distills, that's a very, very great joy for her, which is unusual in our modern world. Right, and you mentioned um, that Eleanor is making medicines and she works as a midwife and the book sort of follows or explores this very interesting relationship between the superstitions of the time and and also the emerging sciences of the time. What interested you in that? Well, I think it is of itself extraordinarily interesting how uh, people make discoveries in, in science and medicine and how they are either adopted or not adopted according to how they fit with the politics. So that's very, very interesting to me. And also because the the study of the role of midwives in society is quite a well-known study, especially amongst historians of women and amongst feminists, because it is, even today, uh, the the science of midwifery is one which uh, I think women feel is 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 something that is in a sense a women's art or a women's science. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, you expect to go into labor uh, and you might take the support of another woman. I mean, increasingly women take their husbands, but you, you know, you, you wouldn't, you would expect the support of another woman there. And that was something that was absolutely compulsory uh, prior to the ambitions of male physicians to move into midwifery skills. And what we've seen between then and now is actually the hospitalization of birth and that Mm -hmm. has enormous implications in terms of uh, both on the plus side the safety of the children but also on the negative side whether we regard pregnancy as in a sense an illness which has a crisis point or whether we regard as a natural process which can be done wherever you happen to be You you can have a baby anywhere you can safely deliver a baby on your own but uh, starting in this period where Eleanor is herself is being squeezed in her occupation, we see a, we see the start of the period in which people are, in a sense, alienating women from the natural process of birth. And the novel is set during the time of the great witch hunts of Europe, uh, which is both historically very interesting and also perhaps a little relevant because we have always pointed to marginalised groups as the sole reason for the complex difficulties in our society. Do you think that the scapegoating of of women and the hundreds that died parallels our society in any way? Did you intend for the story to have parallels? I think think it's been a pleasure to me that people draw parallels and that this this story about a 1648 woman in England very marginal woman mm. in England has made people think about the wider society uh, of today, and that's, in a sense, that's that's for the reader to do. Like you can read this novel purely for enjoyment, purely because there's a, I hope, it really powerfully engaging story and a heroine that anybody would want to read about. I think she's a, a, a very endearing, very interesting, very complex woman, and she has a life of. Uh, quite a lot of event and crisis 
So it should work as a novel. It should just work as a novel. Uh, the fact that it's set in the historical past is, is mm. to me, just in, in some ways a plus because I want to write about history, so that's why. Of course, for me, thinking about women's lives, as I do all the time, uh, the scapegoating of women, as both as uh, possibly witches, but also the, the pressure on women to conform to uh, a male morality. So the double sexual standard is in there, but the way the community works to oppress women, the way women in the community work to oppress women, which is such an important part of keeping women in their place, is that other women keep women in their place. All of that is of enormous interest to me in terms of how we manage our freedoms and how we negotiate freedom today and how we protect the freedoms we've won today. So in many ways, of course, it's a tremendously contemporary novel in that it's talking about how women can make their lives more safe and how women can protect themselves and each other. But at the same time, that's for me to know and that's for the reader to think about if he or she wants to. Uh, I never think that a novel is a good place to preach. Uh, if I'm actually working at the moment at the same time on a non-fiction history of uh, women in English society and that's where... I'm quite open about saying this happens and it's a bad thing or this happens and it's a step forward and this happens and it's a pushback, which seems to me to happen almost immediately. Um, so if I wanted to teach people about women in English society, I'd do it in a history book. Mm -hmm. I think a novel is a place where you inspire people and you inspire them to think about themselves, about their society and perhaps to go on and, and study but it's certainly not a place to tell them anything. That's really interesting because the novel is backgrounded by all of these quite political um, events. The English Civil War is roiling England, deposed Charles I, is imprisoned. There's all these clashes between the royalists and the parliamentarians. Um, and Eleanor, um, in her marshy um, setting in, I think it's the south of England, is it? It is, yeah. It's uh, those of those of your listeners who know. It's mm. south of Chichester. It's there's a very interesting estuarine coast, which is uh, lots and lots of wide river mouths, and uh, she lives on what what we call the tidelands, where it's sometimes land and it's sometimes sea. So the marginal nature of her life is really reflected by the fact that she doesn't even live on somewhere that's reliable. She's not on a solid bit of ground. She's in somewhere which the very nature of where she lives changes twice a day. Yeah. So sorry, that was just that no, was a bit yeah. of that was a geographical <laughs> aside. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. She lives in times of extraordinary political mm. crisis and extraordinary political unrest. Yeah, and yet you make her humanity the center of it. So all of that stuff is unfolding in the background, and she's certainly affected by it because she's helping to shelter a Catholic priest and her brother is fighting uh, with the parliamentarians. But um, her conflicts unfold in a much smaller way and a much subtler way. Oh, absolutely. I think for most people, um, I mean, there's a great story about the English Civil War that somebody goes, um, one of the historians, one of the great historians of the English Civil War tells uh, a possibly an apocryphal story about someone's galloping up towards a battle 
and uh, between the Parliament forces and the King's forces. And he goes past someone ploughing in a field and he says, where's the battle? And the guy says, well, what battle? And he says, between the King and the Parliament. And the guy says, oh, are those two fallen out? <laughs> the first he's heard of it. And it's happening two fields over. Because in a, in a country with very little communications and with no mass communication whatsoever, extraordinary things happen in London and on the border of Scotland. And you don't hear about it in, say, where we are, um, Sussex, for literally more than a week because the news just doesn't get out. It's got to be... It's got to be reported, it's got to be printed in a chapbook, and then someone has got to bring it, probably by horse. So everything, you know, all the news is old, and all the news is unreliable. And most people had very little idea of what was going on until it got to a crisis point where we really are in 1648, where Charles I has lost and is imprisoned. And even then, nobody knows if he's going to be able to negotiate his way to a settlement uh, and so this is at the sort of the tail end of the Civil War, where the fighting has more or less finished, though there's a couple of mopping up operations in the north. And someone like Eleanor would never have had much interest in it, because like for most common people, who is actually running the country makes much less difference than what is the price of corn. You know, it's because she's so much mm. at the level of survival because she is so marginal um, to the life of the country. She has marginal interest in it herself. And so her life is impinged on by the Civil War because she actually meets someone who brings the danger right into her village. And that's why, in a way, I think it's a, a, a big story. It is genuinely a big story because it's a small life, but it's it's set in a big story and it's a big event in a small life mm. and you were saying before that that the setting these this these marshlands these tidelands these uncharted areas that are constantly changing um are something of a metaphor for her own um uncertain identity and the instability of the country yes very much so. yeah and it's the the marshlands that are they're as vivid as the characters the book has thank and you that's, that's, <laughs> I, I, I didn't realize until I'd actually finished writing how powerful they were for me and how powerful they are for the characters. And then I went back to reread the novel and went like, have I done this? Because now I think of it, I really want to do it. And I was so pleased how it, how it works for the novel. It, I, I set it there because it's uh, an area that I lived in for about four years when oh, I was wow. uh, attending Sussex University. I didn't live in Brighton at the university. I lived on this very, very uh, unglamorous, very quiet uh, part of the countryside. And I worked as a conservationist uh, guarding a colony of little terns, which is not a very interesting bird to <laughs> lots of other people. But it's very rare in England, so we've got a very small colony there, and they're important. And I spent li literally day after day, when the tide was low, making sure that people didn't walk onto this little muddy island where the terns nest, or they didn't let their dogs onto it, so the terns could nest in peace and produce young. It's, it's such a tiny job to do. It's, in a sense, it's very much like Eleanor's life. Mm -hmm. And only, I mean, this was 40 years ago? 
And only when I started to write this novel did I understand that that landscape had really entered my consciousness and remained in my memory and was so powerful to me that when I started to write it and describe it, and of course I went and looked at it again and I bought maps and uh, old maps, 18th century maps and 17th century maps and surrounded myself with them and really entered that landscape again and then realized how much I loved it and how much I'd loved it at the time, though I was 20. So uh, I don't know about you, but when I was 20, I never thought (laughs) really consciously about where I was. I just was, you know, there. (laughs) And and now looking back, I realize that I, you know, completely belong to it in a way. Well, for, you know, for four years, which is a long time when you're 20. Mm. Well, is it it true that uh, your ancestors, I don't know dating how far back, lived as poor people in flat and muddy areas of England as well? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think, to be honest, almost everybody's ancestors <laughs> were <laughs> poor people in muddy areas of sure. England. You know, there was a lot of mud and poverty mm-hmm. in the past. But yes, my, my ancestors came from a place that was actually called Falmere, but it's, it's not in oh, Sussex, wow. it's in Cambridgeshire. Yeah, I know. It was, it's been really fun to, in a sense, know one's family history back to that date and to be able to weave it through just a little bit through the fiction. It was just another source of knowledge, really. Mm, your readers will be really familiar with your uh, centering of this stoic, dignified, determined woman. And I think her knowledge of and familiarity with and kind of um, yeah, understanding of the landscape is what gives her her strength. Yes, thank you for saying that. I mean, I do, I do care very much that I'm not just, I'm not just writing about women in history in a sort of uh, conventional women aren't important, but I'm going to talk about them <laughs> sort of way. Sure. You know, it, mm. you know, in that slightly, you know, the way people talk about women's history is if it's a sort of rather eccentric choice of, you know. <laughs> Feminists in dungarees, you know, because mm-hmm. they, you know, because poor dears, they can't think of anything else. I don't know, <laughs> but actually, I I talk about women in history because women were important in history. They are making history. It's mm. the historians who failed to see that they were doing that, and so I'm not, in a sense, privileging uh, an unimportant group in order to make a point. I'm actually writing a story, a historical story which is there. It's the problem of the historians that until about 1950, they didn't think to ask what women were doing when the men they were recording were doing these public deeds. Mm. You know, but, but actually in private or quietly or without being recorded, women were at the same time being entrepreneurs and fighting in battles. You know, there are, yeah. there are women soldiers in the Civil War but we don't know much about them. Right. Well, yeah, your books are always making the point that women are these invisible forces behind a lot of historical events. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like you say, you're not seeking to romanticise anything. Um, you're always striving for a historical truth. Yes. And writing history is its quite a, it's a highly critical game, I would say. There's lots of scrutiny, which you somewhat avoid in writing historical fiction because you get to put that word novel on the front but at the same time you've said yourself you find it important to remain loyal to the past as loyal as you can why is that oh (laughs) that 
it, that, that's a that's a profound question for me. Firstly, because uh, the superficial answer, the easy answer, is because I trained as a historian, and so uh, yeah. the most important thing to me in historical fiction is that the history is correct, that the fiction is, you know, beautifully crafted, that it should be as good a novel as I can possibly do. Every single novel must be as good as I can possibly do. I have this sort of platonic ideal of how wonderful a novel is going to be, and I, I strive for it really mm. daily um, with, of course, because I'm human, more or less success daily. Mm. Um, but the history is... You can't compromise on, for me, I can't compromise on the history. The history has got to be either what we know happened because we've got a record, what we are pretty sure happened because we've got records around it, or what is the safest bet that happened mm. because there are no records at all, but we can see other evidence for the event I'm describing, the consequences of it. So, for instance, the escape attempt by James for Charles I doesn't happen because James is a fictional character, but mm. there were many, many escape attempts by people whose names we don't know uh, that failed at the time Charles was in the Isle of Wight. If any one of them had succeeded, we would have known the name of the guy who did it, but because there were failed attempts, we don't know about it. So the idea that history is written by the winners is absolutely right, mm. and what I'm trying to do all the time is the history of the losers and the history that wasn't recorded. And why it matters to me so much that it should be accurate is because I, um, you know, I have a profound sense that just because somebody died 500 years ago or 300 years ago does not make their reputation any less important than someone who died, say, yesterday. I have a sense of honoring the past, which comes from a sense of respect mm. for the past even though they're not my immediate relatives, even though they're not just died. I still think it matters that we respect, you know, the courage of people and their integrity. Right. If they were brave and had integrity, you know, it's right that that should be honoured, even if, you know, we don't even know who their descendants are, even though nobody will appreciate it. Uh, it matters to me. Well, yeah, you say that um, that you have to really delve into the minds of your characters. I've heard you have almost do a little bit of method acting at times um, <laughs> when you're doing... It's, no, it's true. It's true. I'm giggling at your research. Yeah, I don't, I don't admit to that much these days because it sounds so peculiar. But yes, I, I, I certainly, um, you know, in order for me to write as if I am them, I have to, during the period of writing try to get into their heads, try to walk in their shoes. And that, of course, means that you can't do it in a moment. You can't walk into your study and it's not like walking in and going like, now I'm going to bang out 500 words on, I don't know, the history of socks. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> um, but I am going in going like, now I'm going to try and imagine what it would like to be Jaquetta, Duchess of Bedford, before the walls of London, where they, the citizens come out and say to me, we know you support Margaret of Anjou, please take her away, we hate her. How, mm. am I, how am I going to feel? You know, it's a massive question which went on internally, and we don't know what she felt or thought because she didn't leave a diary, as did 
almost no women before the 17th century. So we don't know. We know that happened, but we don't know how she felt about it. So the only way we're going to know how she felt about it is if someone imaginatively reconstructs her thinking, which is why it's got to be a novel, but which is why I've also got to take a moment. And sometimes I go on a long walk with the dog and go like, say that was me, say I had had all her experiences, say I am her, how do I feel now? And of course, you know, there have been times when my husband has been most unhappy to find <laughs> that he was having dinner with fundamentally Queen Elizabeth who <laughs> is not a comfortable companion. <laughs> Who's who's the best or who's the most fun to um, to inhabit? It, it it was wonderful to be Mary Queen of Scots, mm. Mary Stuart, um, because she's so willful and confident, and she was up against so many difficulties. In my novel, The Other Queen, uh, I wrote her late in her life, not not the bit that everybody has done so much of, not the not the period in France or the period when she was Queen of Scotland, but when she was imprisoned in England. And I think then her determination uh, and her perseverance and her courage was wonderful. It was wonderful. It was lovely being her. I <laughs> love being her. Um, <laughs> no, they're all great to be. I mean, the thing is, is that if you take these lives seriously and you attempt seriously to reconstruct them historically and then Re- and then imagine them emotionally, uh, you enter into a world which is, you know, completely illuminating. Well, my next question was going to be, um, outside of this series, uh, what can your fans expect from you? I'm writing this uh, non-fiction history book of the history of women of England. I'm publishing this just before Christmas, uh, a rewrite of my children's series, uh, Princess, the Princess Florizella series, which uh, I've rewritten. It's going to be called The Princess Rules, and mm-hmm. that's been huge fun to write, uh, and I think is going to be a lot of pleasure for people. Uh, it's really for children to read for themselves or for adults to read to them. Um, nice. I've got book two on the stocks, which is coming mm-hmm. along really, really fast, really, really exciting. More drama in it than I usually uh, do, okay. but that's the, the joy of being in the fictional world. So it's got a lot of a lot of things going on. It's very exciting to write. And um, let me think, what else am I going to do? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I've I've written a play. Oh my goodness, it's going. I know. Wow. <laughs> I know, and I'm I've been tremendously excited about it for uh, a year or so, and. Uh, the Globe Theatre in London are going to do a reading of it uh, to industry, to producers and theatre directors and see if anybody wants to put it on. Oh, wow, that's so, exciting. Oh, gosh, it's so exciting. So I'm beside myself about that. Mm. Well, you've certainly kept yourself busy. I do. But, you know, you'll observe that the novels are coming every other year. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to write a novel a year. And I've I've taken more time, and that means that all these other things are done in a more leisurely way. And mm-hmm. I'm really enjoying the sort of the the richness of the time. So if I want to work on something else, I'm not I don't have a sense of being under a deadline at all. Sure, a novel every other year is still a lot of novels. <laughs> <laughs> you say that like you're taking a vacation. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Philippa, I wonder if there's anything else that you'd like to share about this series or about anything, really. Um, I should say that I'm, I've written a script of a film, mm-hmm. adaptation of my novel, Taming of the Queen. Oh, wow. And that we're hoping to go into production with it. We're looking for production partners. Um, and it's, I mean, it's, I, I've loved, I loved writing the novel. It's about Catherine Parr, uh, mm-hmm. Henry Yates' last queen. And it's a novel which does have very, very powerful resonance because he's a tyrant and uh, he literally abuses her and he clearly abused his other wives, uh, which we don't tend to read into mm-hmm. the story because we think of him as a historical character, but actually he's a serial killer, as you can clearly see. Um, and so that, that's been a really powerful novel to adapt and uh, I'm looking for finance so if anybody hearing this is a film producer and would like to to help us get this made I should be very pleased to hear from them yeah (laughs) me Me too I'm sure all your fans will be pleased if that lines up yeah I wanted to do it because I wanted to write my own film script I didn't want anyone else's input at the Mm. script stage you know when you go to film it's very much a collaborative project but I didn't want this story to be diluted or changed at all I thought it was so important I wanted it to be as I had imagined it Uh, so that's my ambition well I'm curious then what was the process like doing that and doing the play compared to your books well the the film process was like all film processes are incredibly prolonged compared Mm. to writing a novel because I was I'm working with a very well-known English producer Ruth Caleb and uh, her script editor Adam Carter and that that means going you know writing a draft going back to them reviewing it going back again reviewing it deciding that you can't do you physically can't do something on film which you can do on a novel um, changing it so it's been I think about five or six drafts till we've got to a script that we're really excited about and now we're in talks with a very well-known director and she's keen very very keen to do it so it's so there will be more drafts, and then <laughs> when we can get um, some producers and distributors on board, there'll be more drafts. I know from them, but the joy of it for me is that they will be my drafts. So I will be holding to the historical authenticity of the project, you know, like a leech, um, mm. and that's my determination that this is made, so that hopefully when I go to the cinema. Or, or when my readers go to the cinema, they see an, uh, a really truthful adaptation of the novel. So it's got to be a good film, but that it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to cop out in any in any direction at all. It doesn't have to be romantic like films sometimes can be. It doesn't have to be historically inaccurate. It can be a really successful film and be true to the history. Mm, just like your books. That's a nice note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Philippa. It's been a pleasure talking to you. It's been a real pleasure for me. Thank you.